0: Galatians. If you're like, oh, I want more of Galatians than just one sermon, uh, God willing, we'll do 15 weeks through Galatians after Easter, okay? Like, what are we doing before Easter? Lamentations. Yeah, happy book. And then Revelation. We're going to finish Revelation, and God willing, we'll do a seven-week series through the seven churches of Revelation, and then we're going to do Lamentations because Anthony's been wanting to do that forever. Uh, Our resident sad pastor. (laughs) Our emo pastor. That'd be a funnier joke. And then we will have Easter Sunday and then about 15 weeks through Galatians in 2023. But for now, we're doing this fast... Uh, pedal, run, sprint through the Bible. Uh, We started in Genesis doing a book plus a week. We find ourselves in Galatians. If you want the alliterated title, faith, family, and freedom. And it's not um, all bald eagles and American flags, even though it sounds that way. You know, faith, family, freedom, friends. It's, It's more than that. So I will read chapter 5 verse 16 through 26, pray and see what God has for us this morning. Paul writes and says, "But I say, walk in by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh or for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do." Now turn our hearts and attention towards your word and what you've done through history. We ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to know and understand and grow in our capacity to love you and our neighbor. And so would you sort through all that it is we bring into this place this morning? And would you direct, guide, and empower us by your spirit? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So there's always difficulty in coming to an ancient text that's roughly 2,000 years old and go, "What's going on here?" And really, this could be said about every single book of the Bible, that there's this incredible gap that we have of time, space, culture, language, all of those things. And, and there's kind of this dual danger that goes on in at least I feel every single week. On one hand, I don't want to get lost in the weeds with all the details and history and minutia. And all of you would say, amen. I don't like it when you get lost in the weeds either. On the other hand, the danger is that we can just take this text that God has given us and just kind of do whatever gymnastics to make it say whatever I want or I feel week after week. And I don't think you want that either either. So there's this tension of how do we engage and understand this ancient text and apply its truths to today. This is believed to be one of Paul's first letters, if not the first that he had written, uh, likely from the city of Corinth to this group of churches in Galatia. And I'm going to read a quote that I found helpful. It comes from John Stott. He is one of the leading theologians of the 20th century. And and he says what's required is double listening. He says this, I believe we are called to the difficult and even painful task of double listening. That is, we are to listen carefully, although, of course, with differing degrees of respect, to both the ancient word and to the modern world. In order to relate the one to the other with a combination of fidelity and sensitivity, only if we can develop our capacity for double listening will we avoid the opposite pitfalls of unfaithfulness and irrelevance and be able to speak God's word to God's world with effectiveness today. And so week after week, this is what we're attempting to do is understand the world in which the Bible was written In its original audience that was hearing these words from the apostle or any other author that was writing scripture, and at the same time recognize who we are, and as I said, I believe it was last week, when we are, whenever that was. And this letter comes to a group of churches, we'll get into a little bit of the history, that was started by Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter number 14. Derb, Lystra, Iconium, this kind of general area in... uh, The ancient world. And what was happening is you had these Jewish missionaries who were going to these Gentile cities, and both Jewish people were converting to Christianity, as well as Gentile believers being welcomed into this fold of this new humanity called the church. But with that, and I don't know if you've ever been a part of an experiment where two groups of people from largely differing backgrounds come and kind of coalesce, there's unique challenges and questions that arise. And for this group, they go, what about the law? This, you know, first five books of the Bible and all the rules that God had given the Jewish people through Moses, what about the law? And what about circumcision? What about diet, law, circumcision? Those are the three big questions that were pressing the church then. Now you fast forward today and you go, I mean, there's plenty of arguments around diet today. Ah, paleo, keto, vegan, raw, liver king. <laughs> this is ridiculous. But it's not necessarily held up within the life of the church so much. I used to joke with junior hires. I taught through Galatians to junior hires, and I made lots of jokes about circumcision not really being an issue. There's not the person behind the locker like, hey... You've been circumcised, and that's why I'm not a youth pastor anymore. <laughs> and the law, again, these questions matter deeply for them, and, and I would say they do matter today as well, but, but it's taken in such different degrees. The issues were present, but so very different. We're concerned about calories. They were concerned about whether or not it was kosher. So what happened was a church council met in Acts chapter 15. And so they're, they're dealing with, how should we go about this? We've never crossed this bridge before. How do we go about this to be faithful as God's people in God's world? And so Peter speaks to the issue in Acts chapter 15. And he says in verse 6, The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And so this question is people were coming into these churches and saying, yeah, it's great that you have faith in Jesus, but you also need to adhere to the law. You also need to get circumcised. Peter's going, no, that's not seeming to be consistent with what God is doing through Jesus. Then, a letter is written, and James says this, Therefore, my judgment, Acts 15, verse 19, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And so this council makes the decision, let's send this letter. They are to adhere to every single dietary restriction of the law. They don't need to get circumcised, but stay away from idolatry and things polluted by idols, stay away from sexual immorality, strangled, and from blood. They send the letter off, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> If only it were so easy. That's not what happens because they still live in the world, they're still dealing with their flesh, and there's a devil at work in it all. And history is full of heretics. The Judaizers come in and cause quite a stir still within these churches. Again, the primary concerns for the church in Galatia was around circumcision and food. And it wasn't with the particulars and the practicalities. Again, the Apostle Paul observed dietary restrictions. You can read in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, he has Timothy, kind of his protege and son in the faith, and he goes, hey, Timothy, we're going to get you circumcised because you're going to be ministering to the Jews. Okay. And so Paul observed these things in certain contexts still, the problem wasn't with the particulars or the practicalities of it. It was the elevated importance of putting these things at the level of gospel importance. It wasn't observation, but emphasis for salvation. It goes against what's been coined as simple gospel math. This is not original to me, and it is this, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Scott McKnight, in his commentary on Galatians, gives a little bit fuller of an understanding. He says, Paul was against the legalism of the Judaizers. Again, the Judaizers are the group that came in and said, you need to be circumcised. You need to adhere to the law because it usurped the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and forced all converts to become Jews. It was not what was done that rankled Paul It was why these things were done that produced his quick reaction. The system is one of addition by subtraction, adding to the gospel by subtracting the sufficiency of Christ and the Spirit. And so this letter comes to these people to clarify and communicate and then call them to life with Jesus together. And so you see, kind of a, and this is a rough breakdown. In chapters one through two, he re communicates to them what the faith is all about. In chapters three and four, he then connects them to the family of God of old. And then in chapters five and six, he writes to them to show them what true Christian freedom looks like. And again, that's not, when I say all of those words, faith, family, freedom, it's not, you know, barbecue and bald eagles and American ideals. It's not like Chip and Jojo with, you know, uh, the fish on it kind of thing. Love Chip and Jojo. But he's not talking about our common understanding of kind of this pseudo sort of faith. And we like the ideals of family and freedom! Like, he's addressing something different. And I hope we see that by the end. First, he roots them again in the faith. Chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, Paul clarifies to them and, and uses some pretty strong language to not leave what they had been given. So he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we Or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. You hear that, Joseph Smith? Um, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Notice what they were given was another gospel, a distortion of the gospel. It was taking on top of the free work of who Jesus was and what he had done. That Jesus had arrived on earth, that Jesus had fulfilled the law, that Jesus had died on the cross, that he had risen again and welcomed us into this family, and that Jesus alone is sufficient for salvation, they wanted to add on top of that. And so they're saying, yeah, faith in him plus whatever it is. Whenever it's neglected that Jesus alone is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father through him, you get a distortion in a lessening of the true gospel. This gospel changes everything. And Paul shows them how that faith in Jesus is to affect and infiltrate and influence everything in life. One of the best known passages in in all of Galatians is chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify or set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Do you see within his language how all-encompassing this faith is for him? We just sang, and it it struck me as odd, but then I go, oh yeah, that's biblical. Your blood flows through my veins. I go, that's pretty graphic imagery. And and we sing that freely, like, yeah, your blood flows through my veins. And you wonder why Brianna sings and not me. This is it we are crucified with Christ. The life we have in Christ is not our life, but it's Him living in and, and through us. And in living in and through Christ, we don't set aside His grace to move on to law, move on to legalism, move on to additional rules that we elevate to the level of salvation. We live in Him. Everything comes in and through Jesus, is the foundation in the center, and friends, if or when there's anything else that is emphasized or elevated, it shifts the center and becomes, one of my favorite words, cattywampus. You know the word cattywampus? It's in the dictionary. It's off-center and wibbly-wobbly. That's what happens when you come into a church. And and here's the thing. Every church is going to say, we're all about Jesus. And you go, okay. But then what is emphasized week after week, month after month, year after year? For many churches, it's like, yeah, we love Jesus, but you really need to serve and you need to serve in here. So if you aren't serving, you're sinning. You're like, wait, what? Yeah, service is important. But if that's elevated to here, we got... This week, there was a clip that, that went online about a very influential pastor in person. I'm not going to out him, but it, it made me so discouraged because he was speaking at a political rally, and it was all about not just that you vote, but who you vote for, making sure it's the right vote. And I go, again, we've talked about this. We want to put people above politics, but what has happened, and I think it's one of the newer things in at least my time, is this elevation of politics to the place of utmost importance? Not just that you participate, but who you're voting for, and, and, and it's another kingdom that's being elevated to this place. Again, for them, circumcision, adhering to the law. And Paul's saying, no, it's this unadulterated gospel that through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, That's what we build our lives on, and that's what the family of God is formed around. And that's not some new invention, but it's connected to the whole story. In chapters 3 and 4, we see how Paul connects this first century church into the family of God, going all the way back to Abraham, who I don't know if you heard. He had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you. Let's just praise the Lord. Right hand. I don't know. Anyways. I'm not going to get too far off. Yes. Paul recalls all the way back to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 that f- this promise God gave to Abraham that from him all the nations of the world would be blessed. That he believed God and it was counted towards him as righteousness. And that Jesus then connects us to that whole movement. Galatians chapter 3, verse 5 through 9. Paul says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing by faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul's showing these people who are wondering who they are and how they're to relate to the, the covenant and the law and all of these things. He's saying, you're connected by grace through Christ. And so then the question can become, if you read it, then why the law? Why did God ever give the law? Why does this exist? Well, Paul shows that it had its time and its purpose, and it's really, I mean, you could go into a deep dive of all the aspects of the law and what it meant for the life. I'm oversimplifying it all to a couple things, that the law shows people their need, and it foreshadows a Savior. And that's what we see in chapter 3, verse 23 through 29, where Paul says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now the law has come. We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then see what happens Under the gospel, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. Again, after Easter, we'll do a much deeper dive on what all of that means. What Paul is going to great lengths to show them is how they're connected into this story and how Jesus fulfills it all. That the law shows us our need. If you look at the Ten Commandments, and there's, I believe, 613 laws within the Torah, you go, I don't keep them. I'm imperfect, and I need a Savior. Is, is a Savior coming? And all through the story, it says there's going to be one. One's going to come. There's going to be a Messiah. And Jesus is that Messiah. And this church is Jesus removes all of these boundaries of Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, and unites them to one. We see this is the answer to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, that he would make them one. And then chapter 5 and 6 show us that not only do we have this faith in Jesus, not only are we connected to this family together, but that family is then free. And we sang this. Galatians 5 verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What being in Christ brings in one's life is freedom. And again, here's where we need double listening to, to better understand what Paul was saying then because of how we're influenced today. We see this word freedom and we often place it in our context that has more influence from stars and stripes than, than scriptures, more of a modern and postmodern understanding of freedom than what scripture is giving. Again, I'm not anti-United States. Scripture played a role in the forming of this country. But the freedom of God's kingdom isn't about independence from the crown and eliminating taxation without representation. It's just not. It's better. He's talking about freedom from the curse that was brought in Genesis chapter 3. Freedom from condemnation of being alienated from God because of sin. Freedom from alienation from God and our neighbor. This freedom is about a new heart. It's about a new life. It's about a new creation. As Paul tells the church in Corinth, which leads to then a spirit-empowered life that says no to sin and dehumanizing things and yes to life and obedience. And again, why this is foreign to us is because when we think freedom, we mostly go to me myself and I. We we go to the personal and we go to the individual. And and it's kind of the spirit of our age is, you know, there's the sticker, don't tread on me. Don't tell me what to do. And both sides of the political spectrum in our binary world and understanding live that out in different ways. Tim Keller, in his book on preaching, helps. He says, freedom of choice without limits, how we think of freedom, has become almost sacred. Philosophers call this negative freedom, freedom from constraints, when they contrast with positive freedom, the freedom to pursue some good aim. Absolute negative freedom becomes the chief moral good, so that, quote, the only sin which is not tolerated is intolerance. If that strikes something in you, you can see D.A. Carson's book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, that was written a handful of years ago. And so because we live in this world, again, we have to reorient our brains when we hear this word from what the Bible's saying versus what we hear in our day and age. Again, because some will see this and go, well, if I'm free, then I can just do what I want to do. I live how I want to live. I set the rules, and nobody else can say so. But gospel freedom, a freedom in Christ, a spirit-filled life, is empowered and it says no to sin and yes to grace. And that isn't a return to the law, but a new way to live in the in between. That's what Paul's saying when he says, Walk in the Spirit. And I think this does something with us, in us, for us, as we follow after Jesus together. It untethers us from the cultural could of the flesh. Well, I can do that, I could do that. And so we go about in life and experimentation and we put ourselves at the center and we're God and that has ripple effects in life. The culture says, well, if you could do it, then go ahead. Who's anyone or anybody to say anything against you? And Paul lists out what that is in the works of the flesh that are evidence. There's three major categories. There's sexual sins, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, orgies, There's religious sins, idolatry, and witchcraft. There's social sins of hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. He's saying this is a a work of the flesh. This is not who you are in Christ. But again, he speaks to the fact that there's a bit of a war that is still at work. What a Christian ought to want to do is live in step with the Spirit. Again, and you can get a little more maybe in Romans chapter 7 of this kind of, and I'm struggling to find language around it, this tension, this battle, this frustration that we all feel living this life in the in-between. I've yet, well, that's not true. I have met a couple people, one in particular, that was all about, you, you won't sin anymore. If you're in Christ, you won't sin. I go, Really? And I believe that if you're in Christ, you don't have to sin. If you're in Christ, you have the power to not sin. 10 times out of 10, yes. But there's still this in between and this tension and battle we feel, right? Yeah. And so I, it's, mm, yeah, that guy I said, let me talk to your wife. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> mm, okay. So within culture, we go, well, if you can do it, you go ahead all about you, feels good, do it, whatever. That's the cultural could. And the life and the spirit frees us from that. On the other side, what it frees us from is a religious, legalistic, moralistic should. Well, you should go about. And, and I think every, most, every church is plagued by this. That elevates its particular rules and things to a bit of a religious state my upbringing, first job I had at a church, I said you can't watch rated R movies here here, what? yeah, if you want to see rated R movie in the theaters go to Phoenix okay alcohol again, hot topic there's teetotaling movements, there's indulge movements, there's in between, right? and again, this particular church, it was because you're on staff, because people look up to you, you you can't drink alcohol here. Just go to Phoenix. And so me as a rebellious, you know, 21-year-old is like, I'll show you. I got in trouble a lot. But often church cultures can elevate secondary, third, fourth, fifth tier rules, whatever it may be, dress media that you're allowed or not to, there's the whole thing about whether or not Christians could or should read or watch Harry Potter. Well, sorcery's in Galatians, and Harry Potter's got sorcery. Therefore, don't watch Harry Potter. It's biblical. See what I did? I'm good at this. (laughs) But life in the spirit frees us from a legalistic, moralistic should that elevates these kind of things to a gospel level. And again, today, it can be tough because it's so different church by church and denomination by denomination, but there's often a, a religious, legalistic, moralistic should, and, and often that can be around morals and rules. I think, as I said earlier, the, the hottest button topic right now is around politics and what candidate you support and what thing and person you're going to elevate and it must be making a ton of money because it's so, like, that's, it's all around where money's based. And, and again, it infiltrates in the life of the church. The level of commitment and intention and angst that Christians today often give to politics is Galatian in its essence. We're going to elevate this thing to gospel importance. And as long as I have a role at this church, I will continually As long as this is an idol in our time, speak against it. Because our hearts cannot be wrapped around that kingdom, that movement, that way of life. They're to be wrapped around Jesus. And Jesus then influences the way in which we engage with all of these other things. But that's not the world. The world we live in is just going to elevate it to a fever pitch and blare it always on everything all the time. And then our hearts get entangled in it, and we get caught up in this moralistic should of life. And so I think within Christianity, it's not about a could of the flesh or a should of legalism. It's about what would life look like following after Jesus, after deep and continual reflection on the gospel of who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's brought into this world, how he's formed us together as a family. What does a life or what would a life in obedience to him look like today? That to me is exciting. That to me is compelling. That, to me, is is something of what the church, when it's at its best, is doing, is placing a deep reflection on the person and work of Christ, and then living out in light of those implications today. That we take the battles of our heart and the desires of our heart, and we surrender it all to Jesus in humility and dependency, and freedom is found there. you go, well, are you, are you talking about rules? Or are you, are you saying obedience? That sounds like it could be legalistic. And it's it's, it's a different motivation and coming from a different place. I'll give an extended quote from Tim Keller. The very theme of the kingdom of God, when preached properly and fully, directly challenges, yet fulfills the late modern desire for freedom that we were talking about earlier, freedom from constraints. We can see it in daily life how the disciplines, freedom losses like practice, and dieting lead to other kinds of freedom gains. We also see how when employees submit to the leadership of a great CEO or team members to that of a great coach, everyone on the team realizes his potential and everyone thrives. Submitting to the right rules and the right leader can bring all sorts of great freedoms. If we see this to be the case, then how much more liberating will it be to submit to the true king of our souls? All this supports the famous claim by Jesus that knowing him sets you free. John chapter 8, 31 through 36. Meaning the ultimate bondage is rebellion uh, against the God who has made us. The despotic master is not Caesar, but shameless, shameful self-centeredness and evil and enslaving devotion to created things at the expense of worship of the creator. And so you see that God in Jesus gives us a new, fuller, better kind of freedom. And the good news is that there's fuel for this life that isn't self-centered. There's fuel for obedience that isn't sheer willpower. It's depending on God's spirit, the same spirit, Paul says in Romans, that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you. There's community, you see, in chapter Number six, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then believers have the perspective of eternity that informs life today. He says in chapter six, this concept of sowing and reaping. And he says, one day we will reap a harvest if we do not lose heart. And so we have this fuel for life in the empowering of the Spirit, the help of God's community, and the focus of eternity on the horizon that informs life today. And for all of the controversy that we're not going to get into around what a Spirit-filled life looks like, what the gifts of the Spirit are, and all of that, it, it's really a simple test and in, in framework of what it looks like to live in the Spirit. You go, oh, a spirit-filled life. What does that look like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against that, there is no law. For for us as a family, and, and my son can attest, this is the list we go back to all the time. Was it loving? Was it kind? Was it gentle? Experiencing joy? That's life in Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What does Jesus look like? Read the Gospels. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so the degree that we are walking in the Spirit, these things become ours and influence everything that we say do. And we can appreciate that Paul uses the metaphor of cultivation. It's not automatic. It's not a download. It's this life that is to be cultivated, planted, watered, tended to. And, and, And there's freedom and power for that today. He doesn't come with a shame stick, although he does use really strong language with this church, who bewitched you, oh foolish Galatians, because it's that important. If you are abandoning Jesus for anything else or elevating anything else to the level of Jesus, we have a problem. And we need strong language to shake us up from time to time. And so I hope today for us as a church, we can see the faith that has been delivered to us, this good news of the gospel that there is a Savior, his name is Jesus. We can belong to and celebrate this funky family that has been formed known as the church. And you are a testimony to that. That We are a diverse people of all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different beliefs, all sorts of different convictions. And Jesus is uniting us together, not around all of that other stuff, but around him to where we can experience life together as his family. And from there, we experience the freedom and power that is found in dependency on him, that we are no longer slaves. We're no longer under the law. We are under grace, and that changes everything. I want to share with you a song that's been in my head all week. Uh, it comes from the 1700s. William Cooper wrote it. He co-wrote Amazing Grace with uh, John Newton, I believe it is. And he says this. I won't sing it. I'll just read it. It's, it, it has Galatian themes. Did you say praise God? Yeah. Anthony's not here but you took up his role. Good job, Faith. Yay. Ah, I love you all. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice can change a slave into a child and duty into choice. No strength of nature can suffice to serve the God, to serve the Lord aright. And what she has, she misapplies for want of clearer light. Then to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now if I feel its power within, I feel I hate it too. Then all my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise. Now freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose His ways. Let's pray. And so, Jesus, we come to you today confessing that we need your help. We thank you that forgiveness is freely offered through faith in you, and so we come to that fountain this morning again, thanking you that you offer it freely and fully. And we ask that you would continue to empower us to walk in the Spirit, that we would not gratify the desires of the flesh, that we would wage this war with the weapons you've given us. It's not willpower, but you've given us the gift of this gospel. You've given us the gift of this community. You've given us the gift of your spirit, of your word, of prayer, of the whole armor. Thank you, Jesus, that we have everything we need in you. And so would you take these truths and show us, things in our lives that we've elevated to an unhealthy level and lead us in true freedom and power that your church would show what it looks like to be this people, this community of faith that puts on display the beauty and simplicity of the gospel. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.